Hey everyone, um, it's Adrienne here and I have with me, I have Stephanie Kane. So she's an author of, well, a few books, but the one that we're going to talk about is Crime Redux. I just would love to hear her story on this and why you guys should read this. I've read a little bit so far and honestly, I got to say I'm hooked on this. I got Stephanie here with me. Stephanie, would you like to introduce your book a little bit? Sure. Um, True Crime Redux is about a murder that I was involved in 50 years ago when I was a sophomore in college. Um, in 1973, um, I was um, engaged to marry a boy who I ultimately married. Um, his Two weeks before the wedding, my mother-in-law, his mother, um, Betty Fry was brutally bludgeoned to death in her garage in a suburb south of Denver. I was um, one of the last people to speak to her that morning. I was also one of the first people to see her killer, who was my father-in-law-to-be. So naturally, that day was burned into my mind. Um, I was married to their son for about nine years, so I had a lot of interactions with his father. Um, in 1973, his father was indicted for first-degree murder. But for reasons that I never understood at the time, right before the trial, the charges were dropped and everybody just kind of went on with their lives. You know, the family scattered. I was married to their son and, you know, nobody ever talked about it. Changed my life because I, I early on developed this, this sort of fear or sense that our impending wedding had had, had played some role as a trigger in this brutal crime. And I could just never get it out of my head. And, and long after we were divorced, I just kept thinking about it because I, I, I felt guilty, um, but I had no means of knowing, you know, if that was true or, you know, what had actually happened because the case was dropped. So, you know, fast forward about 20 years, um, I remarried and I told my current wonderful husband um, about it. And he said, well, why were the charges dropped? Um, because things I had observed about my father-in-law's behavior that day were really, really stuck in my mind. For one thing, he had a, a big bruise on his forehead. He was wearing clothes that were kind of heavy and dark for the weather. It was just a scorching hot June day. Um, so, you know, there were things, there were a lot of little things that that had really just stuck with me. I said, well, I have no idea why the charges were dropped. And he said, well, don't you think you should find out? So that led me to um, go to the courthouse where, you know, in the county where the crime had happened and to get the file. And the file was very, very thin, but there was one real gem in it. And that was the transcript of the cop who had investigated, the lead cop who had investigated the case in 1973. And he laid out what the case was against my father-in-law. And to my mind, it, it, was, it was pretty overwhelming. I mean, things that I had no idea about. And, and they had no idea about things that I had seen because nobody ever interviewed me. Decided that to try to come to terms with all of this, I just sit down and try to write it all out. And uh, so I started writing. I had no training writing. I mean, I was a lawyer, 
but that didn't make me a good writer and certainly not a fiction writer. And so I, I, that manuscript became my laboratory over about 10 years for learning how to construct a story. And, and each time I did a draft, I fictionalized it more and more and more because as I got it out of me, you know, I was getting, you know, some resolution and stuff and I didn't need it for me anymore. So I started to shape it into a fictionalized story. And that became the first book that I wrote, and it was published by Bantam in 2001. And it was a murder mystery. It was a totally fictionalized murder mystery. And Bantam made me change any detail that could identify it as, you know, relating to that crime. And I wrote it under my second husband's last name, my pen name, you know, to further distance things. And in 2005, late one night, uh, a certain person saw that interview on a rerun, and it was the killer's sister, my former father-in-law's sister, who by then was 78 years old. And she recognized me, and she went out and she bought the book, and in kind of a crisis of conscience, she came forward with information about a confession that he had made to their mother. And so all of a sudden, a cold case was opened. So that's like the whole background of the book. Wow. And see, like that just shows too that these, I mean, some people are like, oh, well, this little bit of evidence I have, it's not worth anything. It's not going to go anywhere. Or, you know, with cases like this that have already been closed and dismissed or whatever, you never know. You never know what coming forward would do. Yes, you never know how the little things that you observed fit into a bigger picture and all of a sudden that makes the bigger picture make sense cops that's what happened well it sounds like this writing for you was actually a source of therapy it definitely was and you know what i thought i had had my therapy in the um when i first wrote that murder mystery i thought that my therapy was that very first draft and then okay you've gotten it out of you but it turns out that the real therapy was writing true crime redux, because by then I had the facts that I didn't have when I wrote Quiet Time, that I would have given an arm and a leg for when I was writing Quiet Time, because I really didn't know anything except what I, the little things that I had seen. And all of a sudden, I had a much bigger picture after the cold case was over, I got a hold of um, the official files, the complete record from 1973 and the cold case, which was thousands and thousands of pages of witness interviews. Um, there were transcripts and audio tapes. There were all of the um, court proceedings, transcripts of those. There were crime scene photos. I mean, things that you know, you, I just never expected to see. And, and it was frankly overwhelming. I mean, I, 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 I thought, oh gosh, you know, here it is, finally I can find out. Because, you know, when you're a witness in a case, you can't talk to other witnesses until the case is over. So the cold case dragged on for years. So I, I had all this, you know, I wanna know, I wanna know, I wanna know. But when I finally got that stuff, after looking at a little bit of it, I had to put it aside because it was so overwhelming. I mean, one of the things was an interview of my ex-husband who I hadn't seen or talked to in a good 30 years by then. And, you know, when he was interviewed about that day and to my 
great relief, he remembered it exactly the way I remembered it. Because one of the things that the passage of time and then it becoming a court case where you're attacked, you know, you're, you become the focus of the defense along with other people, um, is that you start to question your own memories. You know, did I really see a bruise? Did I exaggerate it in my mind? And, and your mind plays all these tricks and you have to just stick with what you remember for better or worse, research it. You know, I ultimately made my way through all that. And then I had more questions. Um, so I went and I interviewed witnesses. I interviewed family members on both sides, the ones that were still alive in that generation. So like his sister who had come forward with the confession, I interviewed her, Betty's closest sister, actually more than one sister. I mean, I, I really dug into the family stuff. And then I interviewed forensic experts because I wanted, I just, I always wanted to understand what made my former father-in-law tick. He was a very buttoned down, kind of a control freak, which was the first big clue, I guess. Um, he was a, a, a very well-educated engineer. And I just could not, you know, putting that together with the brutality, it was a, it was a tremendously brutal crime. Um, I, just, I just wanted to understand better what made him tick. And that sent me to, you know, first I started with the DSM-5, which is the big, you know, psychiatrist manual on diagnosing patients and that just well, pathological narcissism. And, you know, I got that, but, but I really, it didn't get me closer to understanding who my father-in-law was and what made him capable of this. So I started turning to forensic textbooks and I, I eventually came across this thing called the right man, which was this idea that had well, it was, it was sort of a personality type identified by a Canadian novelist named A.E. Van Voigt, who was researching a book, a novel, and, and, and you know, the, the, and the protagonist and antagonist was a certain personality type, and he wanted to understand it better. So he did a lot of research into this personality type that he ended up calling the right man. And this concept was picked up by a British historian named Colin Wilson, who wrote A Criminal History of Mankind, which is a just a fascinating book. And he called, you know, he picked it up and he ran with it. And so the idea of the right man is a man who feels that whatever he wants to do is justified, and whose flashpoint is, surprise, surprise, his wife. So um but the interesting thing about it is that the wife becomes a woman who he idealizes, yet he has to destroy her by controlling her. And the total irony of this is that this is his downfall, because a right man is ultimately self-destructive. Because when he when he when he destroys this, you know, idealized woman, his wife he finds out that he can't live without her. So it, they go into this, this cycle of self-destruction. Um, and this actually described my father-in-law to a T. So, you know, I, that, that was one of the big things I wanted to answer. Another thing I really wanted to understand was how cold cases affected 
survivors. And at that point, I wasn't looking at myself as a survivor. I, you know, I was a, you know, the divorced daughter-in-law. You know, I didn't feel like I was family, but I wanted to understand that. And I interviewed this, this wonderful guy named Howard Morton. And he started this advocacy group for cold case victims called FOVAM, which stands for Families of Victims, of Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife had started this group because their eldest son, Guy, they had lots of kids, but their eldest son, Guy, was murdered in Arizona in, I think, 1986. And his killer was never identified and brought to justice. So Howard, in his retirement, started this wonderful advocacy group. And so I, um, I interviewed him, you know, because I wanted to understand that piece of it. And I asked him, um, you know, what are the families, the survivors of cold case victims looking for? You know, do they want justice? Do they want revenge? And he said, and he was speaking for himself and his wife, but also for most of the people, most of the hundreds and hundreds of people he had worked with over decades. He said that what most were looking for were, was just to know what happened. They just wanted the basic information, what happened and why, because justice is an abstraction. And most of them, you know, revenge, they didn't care about. They just wanted to know why, what happened and why. Because without understanding that, you can't move on with your life. And through talking to him, I realized that that's why I had, this had stuck with me for 50 years and why I had to like get down to every little detail that I could nail down. Because just knowing what happened meant so much to me. And I never had had that. So whatever catharsis I've had has come through this later process, not the first draft of quiet time. That wasn't even scratching the surface. But you know what, what I've come to understand is that when you don't have information, when you don't know what happened or why, it creates a hole inside of you. And the hole gets deeper and deeper. And because you don't have answers, you fill that hole with other things. Like for me, it was guilt. You know, I must have caused the murder, you know? And for other people, it's other things, but you, you, you fill it with your worst imaginings of yourself because you don't have answers. And you may, like in my case, um, the confession, <laughs> to my horror, but not my surprise, uh, said that, you know, the, the, the impending wedding to their son actually was a trigger, according to the, the murderer's confession, for, of, the, of the rage that spiraled out of control, etc. And, you know, that is very hard personally for me to, to know definitively, but now that I know it, I can start to come to terms with my role. However small or large it might have been, I can start coming to terms with it. But if you don't know, you, you can't begin to move on because what are you moving on from? You don't even know, you know? So anyway, that, that was an important part of my research. And, and that, that gave me a piece of 
of, of an understanding of what had driven me. You talk about having this guilt um, because the fight that they got in was over, oh, um, over you. And, um, but at the same time, also his demise was also part of that. Like being able to finally have that confession and stuff and for it to come out was also kind of part of that. So. Well, well, what, what I really learned through writing this book is that there are many, many pieces to the puzzle and you are just one piece. You know, I was just one piece. There were so many other dynamics going on. And I think that's probably the case in most crimes. You know, it's not one thing. It may, there may be something that brings it to a head, but it's not one thing. And there's frankly a lot of peace of mind for me in knowing that there were all these other things going on. I mean, I know for me personally, um, I was sold off and married at 16 and then into a sex ring. And um, one of the girls is that was in there with me is still missing. Um, and so that's one thing too. Like, I, so I've been reaching out to more to even like my mom, like what was going on in your head? Why did you let me go with this guy um, to some of the other girls? I haven't been able to find all of them, but I found some of them and been like, what led you, you know, what were you thinking at this time? Um, and trying to, you know, just piece it all together because it's not just one piece. I mean, I'm one piece of this giant puzzle. Like, and like I said too, like with, it's, I feel like this is so important, especially in missing person cases. I'm one piece, but there are, you know, thousands of other pieces. And even if you think that your piece is insignificant, it's not because it puts it all together. And there's some peace in understanding that, that you're not the only one, that you weren't the only little part of this, that, you know, you're part of a, a much bigger thing that you had no control over ultimately. But it's it's important to understand each of those little pieces because that only then can you have the peace of mind of understanding where you fit in. Right. Well, and I think a lot of people too, they're afraid and be like, well, if I come forward with this, then I'm going to be in trouble. But for a lot of these cases, there are anonymous tip lines and just being able to just, just voice it. Like, and plus you feel so much better instead of being like, well, I, I'm insignificant, whatever. If you just voice it and, you know, do it anonymously, then it's still, it, I mean, I would imagine that it would feel like getting this like lift off your shoulders, you know? I, you know, I kind of feel like, I mean, as you get old, you're too young to really understand this, but as you get older, you, you still think you're the same person you were when you were younger. You know, you look in the mirror and you think, oh God, no, you know, who is that person? But inside you still feel like the same person. And now I feel like the person I was before I ever got into this. I feel like, uh, unfortunately, I don't have as many years ahead of me as, as I did then, but I feel like I've gone, I, this has been just this horrific 50 year detour, but I feel like I can go back to the person I was before then and, and have some sympathy for her, you know, and 
accept her and, and just kind of move on with that person, you know, before this ever happened. It's not that it didn't happen, but having yeah. that it happened actually enables me to do this. So th there is a there is a brighter side to all this. You get to understand yourself. You get to own the pieces of yourself that, that you maybe hated or disliked or were ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And you you in you in you assimilate them into the real human being who you are now. And, yeah. and and you're freed of that shame and guilt and all of that, you know? Yeah. One hundred percent. I mean, it was just just last year I was able to talk about that. Like my ex full on just like blurted it all out. And I'm like I feel just ah, like a sense of relief. And I'm like, all right, I can just, I can talk about it now. People want to know and they're like, oh, it's a sensitive talk topic. And I'm like, just let's just talk. I might cry my eyes out, but you know what? Let, let's go. <laughs> because it's, it's definitely part of my healing process. It's, it's been helpful. And um, I mean, I also held a lot of like, resentment towards my mom because I was like how could you let me do this and after I talked to her I still don't fully understand why but I have a better understanding uh what she was going through at that time and I think that that's I mean I'm not saying which everything that she did was right but it definitely puts more of a perspective of that's what she was going through and that's why she thought that that was the right decision at that time you know, big when writing a book, especially when it's on something as such as a murder or missing person, how do you navigate that ethical consideration when you're writing about, you know, a real life murder instead of well, having to change it from, you know, um, quiet time? To I had to navigate ethical considerations basically from day one. I was always questioning myself. And that's healthy. That's good. That's important. Um, Betty's murder and writing about it first as fiction and then as this true crime redux, this true crime memoir kind of thing, um, forced me to confront myself again and again. And like choices I'd had at, at key moments, things I'd done or not done. Like in 1973, did, did marrying Betty's son trigger this like this fatal explosion of rage and then when I wrote quiet time I, I had to ask myself and I did ask myself do I have the right to fictionalize a family that I'd once belonged to and then in uh, when the cold case came about of course I had to face those people who I had fictionalized and who, who didn't like me didn't like me back then and liked me even less now um, and then, of course, when I when I was writing True Crime Redux, once again, I had to ask myself, you know, what right do I have to write about this again? Haven't I caused enough harm? You know, um, but where I come out is this. And, and that said, this story is not just Betty's story, but it's my story. It's a story I've been living with that has shaped my life in countless ways for the last 50 years. Um, and then the, the other way I, I navigated these ethical concerns about writing about people, you know, 
all of my former in-laws, I mean, they're my age, you know, they're still alive, the kids in that family. I don't have any contact with them, but, you know, they're still out there. And I, I respect that they're, that they're human beings, you know, just like I am. And so one way that I dealt with that, you know, in terms of writing this memoir is that I was tougher on myself than on anybody else. You know, I just, that's, that's the way I came clean with it. And I couldn't have done it any other way. I just, I just couldn't have, and, and, and felt right about doing it. Um, as far as, you know, balancing um, the details of their lives with their privacy, I was very mindful of that. And I left a lot of things out, I, a lot of things uh, that might have been embarrassing to them. And, and I used a very simple um, kind of formula for myself when I was doing that. And, and it's this, if the detail does not play into Betty's story, it has no place in the book. And I, I did eliminate a lot of that. If, if it doesn't lead to a greater understanding of what happened and why, doesn't belong in this book. And you know the other thing I think is that everybody, all, all the other participants or, or family members, they're all free to write their own books. Right. You know, this is my take on what happened. It's based on a tremendous amount of research and they're free to write their own memoirs of what their family life was like. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have a monopoly on this story, you know? Yeah. When did you decide, okay, this is going to be a book versus just writing it out for your own therapy? Well, that started out in quiet time. Uh, the first way that I wrote it was in, and this was before I, I knew anything about writing a book. I was just doing it purely for my own purposes. I wrote it in all these competing voices. So like there were 10 first person voices because I kept trying to, I always wanted to understand what happened, the bigger picture? What was it like for this person? What did they think if they saw the bruise? You know, what, what might have been going through their head? And then as I started to, you know, get it out of me and I didn't need it so much for myself, it started to take the shape of a fictional story and I started to educate myself about how to construct a plot. So that, that was that part. But in True Crime Redux, what happened was, once I got this avalanche of material after the cold case was over and I'd interviewed all these witnesses, I, I wrote it first as a traditional true crime, just a straight, just the facts, ma'am. I took myself out of it because I thought, I said to myself, you had your catharsis. You had your catharsis when you wrote Quiet Time. Little did I know there was a lot more reckoning I had to do. But anyway, I just thought, I'm taking myself out of it. You know, this isn't about me. And I, I, I wrote it and I got a good agent and, you know, he shipped it or sent it to, you know, publishers and it never sold. And I think the reason it never sold was because by taking myself out of it, I flattened the story out completely. Because I was the one who cared, you know? And when you take the person who cares out of a story, what do you have left? You know, a bunch of dry facts. So I, I gave up on selling it as true crime 
But I had realized that I had much more internal work to do, you know, coming to terms with it. And I thought, well, to do this, I've got to write it in first person. I have to put myself back into it. So I wrote it as a blog. And that's where the short chapters and true crime redux come from. They originated in a blog. And I wrote one installment a week for about a year. And I just took every little piece of the case that bothered me. And I wrote an installment about it, a post. And I, I liked that format because a blog post, you know, you could rant on and on and on in a blog, but I set myself a limit, 500 to 800 words. That's all you got, you know, to make a point about this part of the case. And then to kick off each post, I took a little snippet from a transcript or a definition, a dictionary definition to focus the post. And that really tightly written, tightly focused thing, um, eventually I, after I had all the posts, there were like 60 or something like that, I thought somebody suggested, oh, turn it into an ebook. You know, what do you, what do you have to lose? Just put them all in one place. So I did that and that actually attracted a publisher. And that's how True Crime Redux came about. So it was um, these short, intense, cathartic little bursts that covered the case from all these different angles that somehow I think fall into a dramatic arc, like a good story should, you know, with like a beginning, a middle and an end. And that's, that's how it ended up the way it did. And with each step, in fact, right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm getting more insights into this because of things that you're saying, you know, and that contributes to my understanding of this story because I'm getting a little bit of your story. So it's in a, in a sense, it's a never ending kind of thing. But by the, by the time I finished True Crime Redux, I feel like I've gotten the best understanding of it that, that I will get. And it's, it's what I needed in order to move on. And the proof of that is that I don't feel burdened anymore. Yeah. I mean, and that, that makes it all worth it. You know, the fact that you just got it all out there, here it is for anyone to read. It's, it's out there. This is, you know, what I felt like happened during that time, what my experiences were and you got your word out. Um, I, well, and actually, there's just a little wonderful little after story to this. After the book came out in May, a month ago, I got two emails completely unexpectedly from family members. One was from Betty's nephew, who I remember meeting him as a little kid, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, I think I met him once or twice, you know, and here he is writing to me as a grown man, thanking me on behalf of his entire family, Betty's family, for writing the book. Why? Because it gave them the answers that they had been looking for for 50 years. And then the other email was even more on it. I mean, that was totally unexpected. That was like, ah, oh, you know, if a piano dropped on my head now, I would die happy, you know? But then I got an email from Dwayne, my former father-in-law, <clears throat> was indicted for murder in 1973, but as I told you, the charges were dropped. Then in the Cole case, he was re-indicted for murder. Um, and uh, anyway, he, but he had remarried. 
And he married a woman who was a close friend of their family, a neighbor, and somebody who was a, a wife of a colleague of his, another engineer. And she divorced her husband abruptly and married Dwayne, and they moved to Florida and, you know, had a life. And I, as I came to learn much later, um, they had a life that was marked by his dominance and control over her. And so, um, but I always had a soft spot in my heart for her because she was very nice to me. You know, she, she was, I, I liked her very much. And, you know, at various times, the DA tried to, you know, ask me, well, you know, was she part of it? Did she, did she, you know, was she a, a accomplice? Did she know what was going on? And I, I never, I just couldn't believe it because I, I liked her for the simple yeah. reason that she was nice to me. And uh, anyway, so her grandson wrote to me, thanking oh, wow. me for writing the book. Um, yeah. I didn't take any cheap shots. I didn't, you know, so I was very gratified by that. And I mean, I'm going to say it too, like you could have, you you easily could have, um, and I know that there are some books out there that do that, like you know. So, yeah. Well, you know, I I think that the way I also kept it clean was um, not only did I not put in stuff that wasn't directly related to the case, but when I I never put words in people's mouths. You know, I quoted directly from transcripts what people said in their own words. I didn't edit it. And when I went into what my impressions were and my beliefs, I made it very clear that I was talking about what I, I thought and distinguishing it from things that they had said. I didn't cross that line, you know? And I didn't want to. I mean, I because I, I wanted it to be the fairest thing that I could produce you know, for my own purposes, not to make myself feel better or anything like that, but to, to create a record to the best of my ability of what happened. So, and one thing I noticed too, when I was searching for her, there's like, I mean, there's information about her death, but there is no, I want to say, for example, on YouTube, like no one is talking about this. Like, this is a, brutal domestic violence and it's been swept under the rug for 50 years yeah and you know her children did not want it to be you know for there to be a cold case they were they were very opposed to uh, their father being re-prosecuted and that was another thing I was very curious about you know, because I can't get into their heads. You know, yeah. I can't speculate what it would be like to have your mother brutally killed and your father be twice, you know, indicted for her murder, you know? Um, so, you know, to the extent that they have not wanted to look at the facts, I just don't know. But, you know, I'm not going to speculate about what drives them or, or anything like that. Yeah, that's one thing that I find when... I'm looking at these missing persons. If 
the person that like their family member if they're not constantly like engaging and trying to put out a voice sometimes they just get hidden and and i mean sometimes i mean i i guess i get it to the sense that maybe they i they're grieving they don't want to relive it um maybe they're not in that spot that you know like you are and you're like i need my therapy i need to you know like just get this off my chest i need to be able to be at peace and Honestly, it is. It it is an at peace feeling, even though you've been through something terrible to just get it all out. Uh, for me personally, it's just like an at peace moment. Um, but I think a lot of them don't want to relive it. And I understand that. And they're traumatized by it. And they want to think that, okay, it never happened. But the truth is, is it did happen. It's terrible. It happened. And by you doing nothing about it, just let's the bad guys win and let them know this is okay to do that this is something that's like just okay to sweep under the rug and you know what there's going to be no consequences um and it, and it has consequences for you even yeah. if even if the guy is never prosecuted you owning your partner that's that's critical that's key yeah. to, to to being able to move on as a human being and fully embrace life you know so you can it's like you know i've got cats and i i know that you know if some if one of them is like frightened because there's a stranger in the house you know they hunker down and they think they're invisible because <laughs> because they're not reacting but of course you yeah know, you can see them and right it's kind of like that you know if you pretend or or you get yourself into a mindset. I don't even want to judge it by calling it pretending. But if you put yourself yeah. in a in a in a mindset where I'm just, you know, I I'm I'm just moving on. I don't want to, you know, go into this. I don't want to excavate painful things. You're it, it's not like it disappears. It's, no. it's you know, you're you're still suffering from it. You're just not dealing with it. Well, it's like the mentos and the coke. Let's just you know, keep pouring them in there and then eventually you're going to either explode um, or you can get it out, you know, a more healthier way. But that's that's how it's going to end eventually. I mean, I talk to a lot of family members that don't, I mean, so in every one of my cases, before I even bring them up um, on my podcast, I reach out to the family members and friends, family, I'm like, Anyone with any information that would like to come forward, please do so. Um, it can be anonymous. Like, I'm like, even if I don't do a video or voice recording, like, with you, like, I can say it in your own voice. Like, I mean, if, even if they want to talk to me, like, and then I never show their face. I just, like, write down, like, what they said and stuff um, and quote it and say anonymously. You know, I do that and a lot of people don't want to, but the people that do, they're like, honestly, thank you for listening because I just was able to get it off my chest. I mean, there was even one guy that came to me. So recently, um, there was this missing person actually here in Utah and I go on, um, missing person, like we'll go out and go look for them too. Um, but we couldn't find anything at that time. And then there was a, you know, 
a body that was found over a bridge and we're like, okay, it could be him. And when it is identified as him, I've reached out to the family and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to do anything about it. And I'm one of the reasons I think is because they're more, con- they're definitely a conservative family. Um, and he is, I mean, an autistic guy that likes i mean he hasn't come out and said he was gay or anything but he likes to wear girls clothes he's autistic likes to wear girls clothes and i'm like okay sure like apparently his friend messaged me and was like yeah he's an embarrassment to his family blah 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 and then he was like just by you listening to me helped and he just he's like thank you for taking the time to listen to me and let me just kind of get this off my shoulders and know that the person that I'm talking to actually cares. It's humans that heal humans. It's the human connection that that brings you back to the campfire. You know, whether you're self-exiled or, you know, you've been cast out of the, 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 the yeah. circle of, you know, the community. It's It's the human thing that that brings you back and that ma- that makes you that rehumanizes you right it, well, it could be just one person listening you know yeah well and i found this guy from there is actually a community page of helping finding him and the person that even started this community page doesn't know the family personally just was like i saw that he was missing saw that he's autistic and i have an autistic son and i know how they can just like wander off sometimes. So I wanted to help. And I'm like, that's incredible that, you know, uh, a stranger could want to do that, you know, to someone that they don't even know. So I was like, wow, that that's very awesome. Like, and just to, you know, get that. And then he that one guy got that off his chest and he was like, thank you for letting me do that. I'm like, see, it's simple as that. Like, I don't even mention the guy's name. He didn't even say I couldn't say his name, but I, when I talked about it, I didn't mention his name. I, you know, it's all anonymous, but sometimes just getting it out there definitely helps, you know? Uh, do you hope that your readers will take any key lessons or insights away from your book? Yeah, there are several. First of all, well, the, the most important thing, I think, is bringing a greater understanding to the need for answers. You know, whether it's, I mean, in Betty's case, in both prosecutions in 73 and in 2005, decisions were made by prosecutors because they they faced what they felt were odds that they were uncomfortable with which was largely because the defense mounted a, a you know a, a steamroller kind of defense and i think when when cops or da's i don't want to be too hard on them you know yeah. but when they walk away from a case like this it affects generations of people you know Barb Fry's grandson writes to me, thanking me, you know, on behalf of his family and his now dead grandmother. You know, Betty's nephew writes to me, thanking me. So that it's it. All these people are affected, 
and it just ripples out and it, it just leaves, you know, this multi-generational trauma behind it. So I think, you know, one thing I would definitely want people to take away is, I mean, cold cases are, are interesting, they're mysteries, they're titillating, you know, they, they engage us intellectually and emotionally because we all want answers, you know, even if we're not connected to the case. There's just a human need to, to make meaning out of crazy, horrible things. Um, but and and when you don't have the the means to do that because some because of somebody makes a human decision, ah, I'm not going to try this case. Too much trouble, and they walk away from it. They are condemning generations of people who cannot move on in a critical part of their life because they don't have the information that they deserve. That's out there, and that if they had it, they could make of it what they want. But at least they have it. So you know that's one thing that I that I want people to take away. Um, another thing is, and, and this ties into what I was just saying, that, that, the, that the justice system, and you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm married to a judge, I've practiced law for a long time, but this thing knocked me for loop, you know, being on the receiving end of it, mm -hmm. you know, having to be a witness, you know, and being under attack and all that. But, but what it made me realize is that the legal system, the justice system is just made up of people who make decisions sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. You know, it's it's not this big amorphous thing. It, it comes down to a few people who are making decisions about yeah. what goes forward and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, we can vilify it or we can romanticize it, but it, it just comes down to human beings making decisions for whatever personal reasons they have. I mean, that's one thing that it, it really showed me. Um, and another thing is that, you know, Betty was a real human being, you know, she, she had a life, she had people who loved her, she had children, she had sisters, you know, she, she was part of a family, and, you know, she was more than just a victim, she was, she was a human being who, who had, you know, all the complexities that we have, and all the things that we want, you know, and so, you know, she, she became to me a much more fully realized human being in the course of writing this book than the person I knew or met as a, I was engaged to her son. Because frankly, she just intimidated me. I mean, she was a lovely, she wasn't trying to, and she wasn't trying to be mean or scary, but all I wanted was for her to like me. And yeah. so everything that I, you know, experienced of her in, in those times, you know, the year or so I knew her before she was murdered was, you know, does she like me? Is, you know, is she going to accept me? Stuff like that. It was all centered on me and, and how I perceived she was reacting to me. It was not her. And, you know, part of that's a function of age, you know, when you're 19 or 18, you're very self-centered, you know, as you get older, you start to see people as, you know, not just an extension of you, but, you know, them in yeah. their own life. And so that, that's one thing that I really hope people take away from the book too, is a sense of who Betty was as a, as a person. You yeah. Know? She didn't deserve what happened to her. She just, so, I know some of my, um, listeners to end up on the stand like you did for missing persons or murders or anything um and i know one that's going through that right now and she's like i'm terrified i don't want to go 
I'm terrified that I've got to, I've got to stand in front of these people that, um, you know, did me harm, did my family harm. Um, what do you say to them? How do you handle something I'm, like that? I'm glad you said that because even me who had had experience, I've been in a courtroom, you know, I was just completely unprepared for it. And I think one thing that you can tell your friend to do is focus. I, I assume she's a prosecution witness. Focus on the prosecutor. Focus on the person asking you the questions. Don't look around. Don't try to block out everything. The courtroom is, is a very artificial environment. It usually doesn't have windows. It's a it's a it's a closed kind of you know room. Mm -hmm. It's artificially lit. There's a judge sitting on a bench in a robe. There are, you know, there are people who hate you, you know, in the audience or, you know, at the defense stand, you know, just try to focus, you know, on the person asking you the questions. And also one thing I learned as a lawyer that really helped me. And I think it, I think it also informed how I wrote True Crime Redux is stick with what you know. Don't take the bait to go beyond what you know. That will get you slaughtered on cross-examination. Stick with the facts that you know. Don't reach for something more that you may suspect, but you don't know. And that's the best way to protect yourself as a witness. Stick to what you know and, and don't take, because they're going to dangle stuff. You know, oh, did... You think Barb knew what he was doing, you know? No idea, <laughs> you know? And and then it, it, it's really, it's it's fair because you're there to be a witness. You're not there to be an advocate. You're right. not there to be a judge. You're just there to say what you know. And if you stick to what you know, you know, you're you're in much better shape. You have much less to be afraid of. So don't, don't take, don't act on the temptation to say something that you may know in your heart, but you don't, you don't have evidence for it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, me and her have been going through, I've been trying to help her a little bit going through like her, her court documents, everything that she said previously, um, trying to get all of her facts straight, like all of her photos, the video that she had, whatever, everything all lined up. And I mean, I, I told her, I was like, you know what? Just answer what they ask, answer you. Um, don't go beyond that. And like, like, yes, no, I don't know. Like, that's about it. And I mean, this case is based off of what the crime is, not how you feel about him, how, not how um, anything prior to that or after that. This is the event, that day, that time. Um, and all those little pieces are crucial. And she's like, I also, th she, when she's going through this too, she was like, I also noticed that like, I mean, she's like, I didn't have everything down to the time and everything. And I'm like, that's okay, but do it to the best of your abilities of what you know, and what's in your witness statement. Like that will help you tremendously if you can, you should be able to get those files pretty much anywhere, I think, in the U.S. Um, if it involved you without cost. I know sometimes if it doesn't involve you, then depending on the state, it can cost. But 
yeah, like just getting the, and she was able to receive those. And um, yeah, and I told her, I was like, I don't think that your witness statement said anything incriminating. You did say, I don't know. You already said it like in your statement that I don't know what he was thinking or I don't know what he was feeling. So I was like, I think that's a good sign. That's even when the, you know, when it happened in the beginning, I'm like, I think that's a good sign that, you know, just stick with what you know. Exactly. I don't know is a perfect, perfectly good answer. If it's the truth. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't remember. And if somebody says, well, but, but you said this, you know, way back then, you can say, well, I'm not saying I didn't say it. I don't remember it now. Hmm. Or, or now that you're bringing it up, yes, I do remember. I mean, that's called refreshing the witness's recollection. If somebody reads to you something that, that you said, you know, you can say, can I see that, please? Or will you read that to me, please? And then if it sparks a memory, you can say, yes, now that I'm hearing it, yes, I do remember now. You know? Yep. Definitely. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. And where can people find you? Where can people find your book and information about you? And I have a website. It's writerkane.com. Everything is up there. I've got an author page on Amazon for Stephanie Kane with a K and that's it. And, uh, you know, if, if you want advice for uh, writers who are in this situation or want to write about a, a historical or crime or cold case, my best advice is don't wait. Do not wait um, to dig into what happened. If you're seriously pursuing this, even just as a personal matter, if you don't, you know, you're not planning to publish anything, you just don't wait. And that's because it never gets any easier. You know, witnesses die or their memories become compromised. You know, the passage of time is is everybody's enemy, but the defendants. It's the defendant's best friend and it's everybody else's enemy. So if you want to get to the bottom of something that happened in your life or someone else's life, don't wait. Yeah, I would absolutely, I would agree with that. That's, you know, that's why I, I try to reach out. And I mean, yeah, uh, if, if you wait too, it can just, it just prolongs you. Like it prolongs the feeling for you of just guilt or despair or whatever you're feeling at that time. Like it prolongs it for you. That's one thing that I've had to learn. I mean, I was stuck with you know this for oh what has it been 15 years so you it's know tremendously disempowering mm -hmm. do nothing is the ultimate disempowerment and if you're, if you're moving forward and trying to to um get to the bottom or understand something that's empowering and the other right. just just sucks away at you until you're like a little husk you know one hundred percent. All right. Well, I'm gonna thank you today for coming on here and sharing your book and your story. And again, you guys can check her out. Um, she did have that Amazon page. We'll link that below. And it was um, what was your website? One more time. Writer Kane. W R I T E R Kane. K A N E. One and word. Dot com. 
Awesome. And we'll link all this information below too, so you can check her out. Um, I'm also going to post her. Um, so if you guys haven't checked out already on our Facebook, we do have a true crime little book club and I'll go ahead. I'll post all of her information okay. in there. Yeah. Thank but, so, <laughs> so we'll, we'll post that in there too. So you guys can check um, that out. And um, guys, as always, just keep freaking going.